0: canva talking presentations record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere anytime start designing today at canva.com designed for
1: work the new season of design matters with debbie millman starts in april the episode you're about to listen to originally dropped in may of 2021 so it's always been rooted and grounded in
2: nostalgia, memory.
3: I think that's a really critical part, that memory piece. Especially when you're asking questions like, is there racism in heaven or what's my role in racism?
1: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Melman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, artists and designers Nick Cave and Bob Fowles talk about their partnership and about how they met at a sample sale.
3: And then you start to look at the prices and you're like, he's trying to make rent and these things (laughs) are expensive.
0: Who doesn't love to live well? to be perfectly at ease in comfort and style. Hunter Douglas can help you do just that with their innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics, and control systems so advanced they can be scheduled to automatically adjust to their optimal position throughout the day. There are so many wonderful things about them. Perhaps it's the way the shades diffuse harsh sunlight to cast a beautiful glow across the room, or being able to enjoy the view outside the window while protecting your privacy inside. When you tap into Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology, your shades can be set to automatically reposition for the perfect balance of light, privacy, and insulation, morning, noon, and night. That's what I love most about them. So live beautifully with Hunter Douglas, enjoying greater convenience, enhanced style, and increased comfort in your home throughout the day. Visit HunterDouglas.com slash designmatters today for your free style get smarter design guide with fresh takes, creative ideas, and smart solutions for dressing your windows. That's HunterDouglas.com slash designmatters for your free design guide which of these vocations apply to you dancer fashion designer entrepreneur designer sculptor if you answered all of the above congratulations you must be the artist nick cave Nick is perhaps best known for his sound suits, which are fantastical, wearable fabric sculptures. Bob Faust is an artist and designer, though he has described himself as part artist, part designer, part mediator, and part therapist. So we're going to have to investigate all of that. Bob runs Faust, a cultural branding and communication studio, and their work has been exhibited in places such as Mass MoCA, and the Chicago Design Museum. I'm interviewing them together because they live together, they work together, and they've even been censored together. Nick Cave and Bob Faust, welcome to Design Matters.
3: Great to be here, Debbie. Thank you.
0: Gentlemen, I understand that you have a very large, preserved wasp's nest on the rooftop of your home in Chicago. So what's that about?
2: We found this building, you know, we've been looking for a building for maybe, I would say, five years, maybe six years ago. You know, we had designed the space and sort of we're in the process of of the construction of the rehab. And so in that process, in the sort of sunroom, in the ceiling, as they were pulling the boards away, was this hornet nest. And I was out of town. They are sending me images, and I was like, build around it. <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> they were like, he's crazy. But, you know, for me, it was sort of the the epitome of, like, in and everything. It was like, you know, the fact that that was built by insects and that it was sort of natural, and it was everything that I believed in. And so I wanted to preserve the authenticness of that idea.
3: It's totally a designed object, too. The minute you, like, start looking up at it, you see this pattern that can't possibly be made by a machine, and that's the most exciting thing. Yeah, and so,
2: you know, and we sort of liked it because it was attached to the property, as well as like in the building there's areas as you walk through the studio where uh, graffiti artists had come in and, and marked up the building in that sort of way and so we sort of you know, and we sort of held on to these elements that somehow found their way as part of uh, the history of, of the property.
0: Nick, let's talk about your background first. You were born in Fulton, Missouri, the third of seven brothers. Your parents divorced when you were very young and you live with your mom and brothers. Your maternal grandparents live nearby on a farm. You credit your mother with kickstarting your career by responding so enthusiastically to your handmade birthday cards. Tell us what kinds of cards you were making. What were you making them with? You know, it
2: was not only just birthday, it was every holiday I would make her cards. You know, it was just sort of, you know, it was sort of me sort of, you know, thinking about her and how do I sort of think about her in relationship to this particular holiday and what does that look like? What does that mean in terms of building a handmade card? And so, for me, it was really sort of thinking through all of that and thinking through the last card and how do I sort of amp up to the next one. And the thing that was amazing is that, you know, there was that sort of commitment of honoring a process that I sort of like decided that, you know, this is what I'm going to do every holiday. And just that commitment sort of paved the way for, you know, responsibility and emotion. For me, it was, you know, you think about this two dimensional sort of handmade paper assemblage and the impact that it has on one's emotion was like unreal and yet real. And I was thinking like, wow, like this makes you feel that way. Mm. And so I was, it was magical because I could not really sort of identify with, in, in a tangible sense, like, What in this process is received in this enormous way? And so that was the beginning of me sort of thinking about the impact of doing, the impact of making an impression, the impact of of, of one responding to something.
0: You've stated that when you're raised by a single mother with six brothers and lots of hand me downs, you have to figure out how to make those clothes your own. Oh, honey, right? <laughs> <laughs> My mother was a seamstress also, so I did a lot of that. How did you go about making these things, and what did you make for yourself? How did you reconstruct uh, some of the hand me downs that you were foisted upon?
2: Well, you know, right, and you know, my mother comes from a family of, of sixteen, and she was the first, and so you know, I was. Saran- She's the
0: oldest of sixteen siblings. Yeah. You know, the
2: interesting thing is that, you know, you're. I'm surrounded by, like, makers. Like, my grandmothers were quilters. You know, my aunts were amazing seamstresses. So, you know, my grandfathers were carpenters, furniture makers. And so you're just surrounded by all of this sort of making. And not that they taught me any of it. I was sort of like... You know, this sort of person that was like this sort of voyeur, sort of from a distance, I was like observing and curious and interested in it. But, you know, I think, you know, I took my first sewing class in high school and weaving class in high school. So I was very much interested in this process of building, to build a cloth. To weave your own fabric was just interesting to me. And so when you're raised with seven brothers, hand-me-downs were part of just what happened. And to know that I could sort of remove a sleeve or I could add a pocket or I could embroidery uh onto an existing garment was really sort of the beginning of claiming and establishing your identity through uh, this sort of material sort of uh, object.
0: Nick, you said that looking back at your childhood, you find it amazing that you were in the presence of so much unconditional love. And I have to say, in doing this show for 16 years now and interviewing upwards of 450 people, No, I've never come across someone that said that they were brought up with unconditional love. And it's an extraordinary thing to realize about the way you're brought up and so unusual. Well, yeah, it's interesting
2: because, you know, it's, I would always hear from my friends like, you know, ah, oh, the holidays and just the drama <laughs> around that. I have never experienced absolutely any drama When we would all gather, it was hugging, kissing, and we somehow knew that all of that drama had to be left at the front door. And it was all about respect. Even when me and my brothers would fight, we would have to say to one another, we're sorry, hug and kiss and make up. It was never like, you know, a drug out for three days. <laughs> it just never was part of my upbringing. So, you know, I don't know that sort of uh, side or that sort of behavior of rivalry. And, and even today, you, yes, you know, I sort of like, oh, I got to step out of the room, collect myself, because that's just part of being able to be in this sort of space, shared space, how do we sort of embrace one another and uh, respect one another?
0: Bob, I believe you grew up in a huge Italian family. Your grandmother yeah. was the oldest of 20 children. Yeah. That's got to be we some sort of world record. put a caveat on that because
3: she had, yeah, she had two sets of um, twin siblings. Mm-hmm. So her mom only gave birth 18 times, only, I guess. Only
0: 18. Okay, thanks only for clarifying that. Times. That's good for our <laughs> listeners to know. We want to be real accurate but here with the number of it, births. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's different than the number of like bodies, I guess. <laughs> but like, it always kind of threw me off as a kid as to like, most people have a general understanding of what an aunt looks like, how old they are, where they fit into uh-huh. the rankings. right. And like, my mom was older than many of her aunts. She babysat her aunts. So all of a sudden, like an aunt doesn't look like an aunt for me. And it took me a long time to figure out kind of what that all meant because some aunts were more like cousins and right. some cousins mm-hmm. were more like people you'd babysit, not a, you would know, <laughs> babysit, right. not peers. We're all just like in different generations, kind of mixed up.
0: As you were growing up, you said that blocks were your thing. What kinds of where things Where are you finding were you... that? <laughs>
1: where would I, I have ever my said weight. that? Oh my God.
3: <laughs> they were my thing. I loved blocks. Yeah, it was, I think that was kind of the equivalent of like Nick doing this making. You know, that was a place where you could dump out a room full of blocks, all different colors, and literally just like lose yourself for days. And not necessarily lose yourself for days like an architect building the perfect building, it was like building the stories and it was like, it was about proportion, but proportion by is needed for this kind of thing to happen in it and this kind of thing to happen in it. So it was very much in keeping with my life today. Like, I think it absolutely was a precursor to how how a designer works, right?
0: I, I love when I come across people that have that kind of background. My brother has a son who's 13, my nephew, and he's just super happy by himself building things, whether it be with Lego or any sorts of things. And my brother's really worried. He's like, why does he just like to sit in his room all day and build things? And I'm like, see what can happen when you do that? Yeah. (laughs) point to people like you.
3: (laughs) you know, I, I, I love, as a little kid, that's what I did. As I got older, my parents were super cool about the idea that your room is your room. With lack of lots of friends and social life, you find really cool things to do on your own. And I would repaint that room in like a, a thousand different ways. That's what Saturday and Sunday might be. And all of a sudden, the room would be a totally different place. Reorganizing the furniture, bringing like stealing stuff from the brother's room to put into my room and replay, you know but all about that.
0: You said that at that time in your life, if you could play sports and if you could be perfect, your life would be as well. You stated that you got so good at being good that you believe this person you made up was actually who you actually were. And I'm wondering what gave you that sense that you needed to be perfect and that sports would be the sort of gateway to that perfection?
3: I think that's just like every single influence that's outside of you. It's everything you see from school to, I guess, TV to magazines. It was maybe like, I too would actually say that my family was full of love, but we didn't touch subjects. There were subjects that were like, maybe not off limits, but they ended up being off limits because of things we built up in our brains, that made those associations or ideas bigger and more impermeable.
0: Yeah. You declared that you lived a picture-perfect life for 45 years this way, all obtained in full denial of who you were. And I can relate, I didn't come out till I was 50, so I totally get it. But you said that these fears helped you hone your design skills. I want to know, like, in what way did they help you hone your design skills?
3: Oh, I, I'm trying to, and now I know where you found all this. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to take myself back <laughs> to that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I absolutely do. Because design is all about problem solving, for lack of a better phrase. And that means parameters. And so the more parameters you have, the more inventive you need to be in order to make something that's wonderful and special. To this day, as much as I love someone saying, go do whatever you want, I love to find the parameters because that's where the invention happens. Mm. And so that, I think that's what I'm where I'm getting at with that. The more walls, the more you have to really think about how you live without <laughs> those walls.
0: Yeah. When did you first realize you wanted to be a designer?
3: Well, I'm not 100% sure of that because I didn't know what a designer was until college. Like at that yeah, time, there was this thing called commercial art, I think it was called. And that mm. meant you worked for an advertising agency and you like might draw things is what I thought. And so I do know that we had to do a time capsule in grade school. And it actually was sent back to you when you were 20 years old. So right after college, right? And the time capsule said that I would be a commercial artist living on a boat on the lake in Chicago with a dog. And I was a graphic designer at the time that this thing showed back up at my parents address. Graphic designer living a block from the lake because you can't live on the lake in a houseboat in Chicago. And I had just gotten a dog.
0: Wow. So I
3: guess I kind of always had an idea.
0: Yeah, talk about a 10 year plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nick, you attended the Kansas City Art Institute, where you continued to sew. Nick, you attended the University of Illinois and got a BA in graphic design. Um, Bob, one of your first jobs was as a design manager for Playboy magazine. What kind of work were you doing for Playboy and what was it like working around all those naked women?
3: It's hilarious. Um That job actually came because it was a brand new position, and it was called the Manager of Design and Production Services for Corporate Communications, and they'd never had that position before, and it was part of the company's restructuring in order to eliminate the budget line of sending an annual report out to be done by a design firm. So, as you can imagine, back in the day, those were Mm -hmm. giant budgets— yeah, And they thought, oh, we could hire a young person to do our annual report for less money than it would cost to send that thing out. And they could do all these other things. And I read it as, oh, I get to be the next Art Paul because I'm still a young <laughs> kid. And I'm like, oh, my God, the opportunity is huge.
0: Absolutely.
3: So I, I took that job. And it was a really awesome job because you're... Not your direct report, but the second to direct report was Christy Hefner at the time. Wow. Her office was literally a stone's throw away. And there was a lot to learn. You know, part of my plan was work at a boutique design firm, work at a big agency, work in-house, and then figure out what you want to do. So that was my in-house kind of idea.
1: Right.
0: Nick, I understand that the first garment you made in school was um, a very sort of flamboyantly designed pair of pants <laughs> and a shirt with a, quote, Harlequin sensibility. W- what is a Harlequin sensibility?
2: You know, I think back then, I was really sort of into Grace Jones.
0: Oh, Of course, who wasn't, right? And so, you know, I was really
2: sort of like going through my drag Grace Jones' drag phase. And so that was really what was influencing, you know, my first sort of hand-printed garment was sort of really sort of diving into, you know, this persona. And so I was like Grace Jones doing my Grace Jones drag for a minute there, just sort of in that space of in between, you know, androgyny and <clears throat> sort of exploring all of that and <laughs> just sort of using the cabaret, <laughs> let's, which is the nightclub, as this sort of platform. It was like, it was an extension of school. How do you bring drag into the sort of public arena? And so I would be making these wearable Objects, costumes, and then presenting them in this sort of setting. So it was sort of me just again always sort of like, you know, outside of the studio, it was like, it's this open canvas. And so I would just be, you know, creating these spectacles on the streets. Why not? You know, and just really just purely out of impulse and gathering friends and making something happen. It's really sort of just cycling through again, through this sort of opportunity of looking at space as a sort of space to occupy in a sense.
0: You went on to get an MFA at Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan, and you were the only African-American in your class. You've said that this was the first time you had to look at yourself as a black male, and it was a struggle to find your place. How did you manage?
2: In Detroit. Yeah. Thank God for Detroit. I mean, I really say that in, you know, the most sort of sincere way. You know, for me, not only Cranbrook, amazing, beautiful, but it's also very isolated from everything. And so I need that urban environment to balance my sort of self out. So, you know, Detroit was there. It provided that opportunity for me to sort of step off of the grounds of Cranbrook and to be in this urban setting, to be around my people, to be engulfed in house music, the club scene, and to be able to be refueled in order to get get back on campus and get back to work. You know, I think that when you... I just never had been in a educational sort of setting where that would even ever occur to me that I could be the only, and so you're just sort of like all of a sudden,
3: you know, your whole being is just in shock. And you had never visited that <clears throat> campus prior to showing up the day no, that no, I had campus.
2: never visited the campus prior, and so. It was just this sort of great awakening. It forced me to talk about that moment, that experience right now. And so it was difficult to talk about or to talk about that in my work or to find its way in my work, but yet it was something that was very much in the forefront and in order for me to move accordingly and to get past this reality i had to sort of dive in you know i thought it was hard for me but my colleagues it was very hard for them because they they didn't know how to talk about the work from my perspective and so right. it was very you know, it was very interesting. And that was really sort of this moment where, you know, I had this awakening sort of moment that, whoa, like, you know, this space that I'm occupying does exist without this sort of expansion of diversity.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the impact in first seeing Barclay Hendricks painting Steve had on you? I know that that was a sort of one of the defining moments in your journey to being the kind of artist you are now.
2: You know, when I saw that painting, it was in this exhibition called Color, which was the first Black expo. And look, I had no money and I was like dying because I wanted this fucking painting. (laughs) And I was like, I don't have $10,000.
0: I mean, back That's then, all 10, it was back then. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh but my you know, God.
2: girl, $10,000 back then is like a million dollars to me. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I have a bro. similar
0: story about Jean Michel Basquiat. I saw a show of his uh, drawings on paper in, I don't know, maybe the early, early 1990s, and it was $16,000. <laughs> uh,
2: right? Oh my, God. And, oh my just, God. and you're just trying to like put it together, like it was just not possible. Nothing I right. was imagining trying to like put together a scenario that was working. So, but you know, I think to be able to see, number one, to be able to be, to experience that expo and to be surrounded by artists of color was like a real big awakening that we've arrived, that we're here, and that I am not the only one that's making art that's an artist of color. And so that was an extraordinary moment. But to be able to see Barclay's work and to be able to see the Black male as this symbol of power, a stoic, and, you know, standing with dignity was... And style, that's when I really was able to tap into style and the influence of dress and the impact of what that is within the community of color. It's like a big deal. You know, it really sort of identifies one's sort of stature, one's clout. And so it was really sort of interesting to be able to sort of see that in the screen sort of gesture and to be proud in that sort of moment of clarity.
0: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. after the police beating of Rodney King, you were sitting on a bench in Chicago and you started to think about yourself more and more as a black man and as someone who was discarded, devalued and viewed as less than. And you saw some twigs littered on the ground in a new light. You suddenly thought that they looked forsaken. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what happened next.
2: You know, I think I had just accepted a position at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago from Cranbrook. And so that's how I arrived to Chicago. And uh, I remember when that incident happened and I was in the office and my colleagues were, I could feel that they were avoiding me Heads were down. I could tell that they didn't want to have this sort of discussion. And I was literally just going through it because I didn't understand it. You know, this is the first time we had documentation of these brutal sort of incidents on tape. So it was really sort of like finally we were able to sort of show, feature what we have been sort of dealing with. And so for me, I was just trying to understand how to process. You know, I could be profiled, that could be me. You know, I'm looking at that and thinking these sort of things. And then, you know, I'm sort of in the park just trying to find uh, a way to connect to talk about this. You know, I happened to look down on the ground and there was this twig. It became something insignificant, something less than devalued. But for some reason, I started collecting the twigs. And so then I went home and got a shopping cart and then started just collecting all the drugs. took them back to the studio, started to build this sculpture. Didn't think that I could put it on. I don't know why I wasn't thinking that. I think I was thinking more about just building this sort of coat of armor, something that I could wrap myself in to protect my inner spirit. And then once I realized I could put it on and I started to move, it made sound. And so that was the beginning of sound suits. And sound at that particular moment was protest for me. So in order to be heard, you got to speak louder. And so that was the beginning of creating these uh, sort of instruments, these suit of armors that were hiding gender race class, forcing you to look at something without judgment. Because in order for us to understand something, we want to put it into categories or find its place. And so it really was all of these things sort of combined into one. Protection. You know, I was reading about how they described Rodney King larger than life, worked out with prison weights, and I'm sort of like imagining, what does that look like? And so building something larger than life, building something that could be threatening, that is daunting in a sense, scary. And so that was the first time that you know you think your your consciousness is awake and you're present and you you know are pretty much sort of like on top of it but that was that moment that situation awakened my consciousness in the most profound way
0: you've talked about how the sound suits obscure race and class and gender Was that something that you felt you were doing consciously or was it only after when you realized you could actually put on the suit that it accomplished that?
2: You know, I think a lot of things in that series of work all sort of came afterwards or in the process of doing because I think that I didn't know what I was making. I didn't know the power that it had until I gave birth to the first sound suit, and when I did and I looked at it, I knew I knew when I saw it that my life would never be the mm-hmm. same and it wasn't and that was the one thing that I knew, and I built this sort of body of work, and I hid it in the closet. I sort of was getting attention around the work so rapidly that I, as a human being, was not ready. So I basically hid it in the closet for probably a decade.
0: Wow.
2: (laughs) Building and making them and putting them away until I knew what I was doing.
0: When did you know what you were doing, though? How did you come to the realization that this is the moment I know what I'm doing? Here's my intention?
2: Because I think once you start to bring research to the work and understand how it sort of has manifested and starting to understand what it means to be shrouded in a garment of sorts, what it is to be a shaman, what it is to be sort of uh hidden, concealed, all of these it just takes time <laughs> yeah, and to be able to put on a soundsuit and then to move and understand how do you become something other, the idea of transformation and stepping into that and surrendering to this otherness you know honey, that takes a whole bunch of time. (laughs) Yeah. And so I just wanted to give myself that in order to be able to talk about it.
0: Bob, I know that you've said that when you put the suits on, they require a lot of you. (laughs) In in what way?
3: Oh, yeah. Just a lot in all kinds of ways. I mean, in the most basic way, physically it requires a lot because... They restrict your movement. They add considerable heat. So you're intended to move. You're supposed to move. So you're already building heat, and then you're now in this little oven. <laughs> so there is this thing that you have to do. And when we are working with a performers or dancers specifically, we try to acclimate them. One by just sit. In, this is your suit. Sit in front of your suit. Get to know your suit. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What might it feel like on your body? <coughs> And then put it on and then sit quiet in it, you know, and that's so that you don't freak out because it is limiting your movement, but it's also limiting your eyesight. So if you have people who are like claustrophobic will totally understand how that takes so much of your energy. But even if you're not claustrophobic, it's an entirely different way of existing in the world once those parameters are shrunk. So you have to settle in it. And then when you settle and you know how... You start to take little movements and then bigger movements and suddenly you know how to operate within it. And then you start to think, wow, this little movement I'm making is having this gigantic effect outside of me. And all of a sudden that starts to switch the feeling. Now you're feeling empowered by it, right? You're being given energy instead of that fear part, which is taking energy away. And that's when the performers become really good. Is, like, is when they realize that the object is not taking, it's giving, it's a surrender. And I think that's another big thing. Aren't we the most empowered when we're the most vulnerable? Mm. That is when we have the most <coughs> power. And I think that that's what they do. But it also takes somebody who wants to be there, being present and purposeful and believing and trusting in the person who made them that he wants you to be as big a part of this thing as the object. You're not just activating them, you are them and you're bringing yourself to them. Um, So there's just so much to that question.
0: Nick, in 1996, you started a namesake fashion line for men and women that lasted a decade. And that is sort of how you inadvertently met Bob. And Bob, I believe you first crossed paths with Nick when you happened to stop by a sample sale of Nick's clothing designs (laughs) a few years after he started his fashion line, but a bit before his art career took off. Bob, can you describe your first meeting, please?
3: So... Oh, they're both smiling, listeners. They're both smiling. (laughs) I was invited to this apartment sale, apartment sale of sweaters. And if you could imagine walking into a room where you don't know anybody, and there's maybe three or four people there in a rack of clothes, and that feeling of being an outsider hits you real hard, and then you're like, everybody knows I'm in this room, and all that there is to do here is to buy sweaters, and so you now know you have to buy one of these things to get out. <laughs> oh, my God, all of that stuff comes rushing over you. and you, you, You're like, all these things have to happen. Boom, 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 boom. And so you approach the sweaters and you start going through them and you're like, this one's crazier than the last one. <laughs> this one's arm could reach the floor. This one has a, an extra back, if there could be an extra back. You're like, <laughs> and then you start to look at the prices and you're like. He's trying to make rent and these things are expensive. I'm trying to make rent, but now I have to buy one. So I'm like, what is the simplest one that I can manage? And I did find one that was like really me if I wasn't so nervous and scared. So I grab it and I just want to get out of there. And he comes up and he's like, well, why don't you go into my office and try that on? And I said, okay. So I went in there. I'm putting on the sweater And in he comes with a stack that has to be 20 tall. He's like, you're going to try all of these on. (laughs) And so he just had me start putting these things on. And what that did was it changed everything because now we're in a separate room talking about these things. And it's kind of funny and a bit ridiculous. And the conversation of what do you do came up. And I'm like, well, I'm a designer and I just live around the corner. And he's like. Well, I just got my first solo show with a publication budget. I said, so why don't we look at doing a trade? If you like what I do, let's do a trade. And he came over the next day and um, he gave me the most amazing prompt after I think he was pretty certain I would do the project. It was the best client brief I've ever gotten. And it was just, I need a book, but I want an object. And I'm like, wow, that is so many parameters. And so open at the same time, it goes right back to that block conversation we had. Possibilities are absolutely endless, but so hard and exciting to get to.
0: After that, you collaborated on a project every year for the next six years and gradually became friends. But the nature of your relationship only really changed after 11 years of friendship. And Bob, you've said that the collaboration allowed you to know each other on a deeper level than a typical romantic relationship might allow for.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, remember, at at this point, I'm living a totally different life. Yeah, You were married to a woman. I'm married. I'm married. I have a a one-year-old. My (laughs) life and what I believe it's supposed to be is totally laid out exactly. And I'm going down that path. So it never entered my frame of reference that this would be anything more than a work relationship. And friend relationship just kind of came naturally as it does with a lot of creative collaborations, right? And so that never entered my frame of reference. And I think it was really lucky for us because you don't have any um, phoniness. Like if you were starting a new dating scenario where you're trying to put on your best light for that person you know there was never any of that and so we got to know each other and confide in one another and worry with one another way before it ever had anything to do with each other
0: I read an interview with you about the start of your romantic relationship where the interview asked you both, who crossed the line first? And, Bob, you answered, that's blurry. (laughs) And, Nick, you stated that the feeling was just there and we both knew it. So I have to ask, you both don't remember who made the first move? It's so
3: romantic. That's such a perfect place to leave that question, Debbie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Inquiring minds so want <laughs> to oh. you know.
3: You I, I could add a little to that. So, like, I think the reason that all that opened up is because there, the year that that happened, my mom passed away. And I think that that was like this linchpin thing about that was holding all that story together. And when that linchpin got loosened and she was no longer someone that I had to worry about. And this is made up of disappointing.
0: Sure, sure.
3: That I was able to tell myself a different story about myself and that story explained a lot of stuff that didn't make sense to me. And so I just confided in him one day when we were together doing a project out of town. And I just said, I think that I'm gay. Mm -hmm. And he said, of course you are. And that oh, was I love that. you were mad. I was so mad. Yeah, <laughs> but that that changed everything.
0: The theme of overcoming fear came up quite a lot in the preparation I did for today's show, and I thought that was a fascinating common denominator that I found this theme in individual pieces about you in my research. And Bob, you've said that when you decided to confront your fear it created a shitstorm. You had been married to a woman but ended the marriage and came out. Was that something that was difficult for you?
3: Yeah. It literally was it was that. That's why I used the word shitstorm. It was a confluence of everything and you just couldn't get under yourself. You know, there was amazing things that were happening and opening up and then there was all of the things that you worried were going to happen were actually happening. Yep. And you're like, how do you navigate not hurting people and at the same time honoring what you know will be better for everyone someday? And how long is someday? I mean, it's a yep. confluence. That's the only word. that I've looked up so many words trying to figure out what it was because it wasn't all bad. Right. It's just it was all hard.
0: I came upon something that your therapist told you that you've written about, and it blew my mind. He told you that fear is not real. It is only a feeling assigned to predictions of the future. Bob, I honestly think that's one of the most profound things I've ever come across in my research. I have to say it again. Fear is not real. It is only a feeling assigned to predictions of the future. Right? Mic drop. That's it. It's like, okay, thank you very much for the most profound thing I've ever heard.
2: You're right.
3: It's, it's everything. <clears throat> Every time I get nervous, it comes right back up. Oh, I'm so glad you feel the it's same way because it. for me, that got me through so much. You just say it over and over again. And it's not. I mean, there's nothing in reality no. that you can um, put that word on. There's nothing.
0: Nick, you've stated that fear is probably the most powerful thing that cripples creative people. And when asked about how to step up to fear, you've said that you just have to push your shoulders back, stand up stout, be bold, and just go in. And in thinking about that, I I really felt that it takes courage and it's also kind of a gamble. Did you ever doubt yourself in that sort of moment where you stood up stout and moved forward? Did you ever worry that what happens if I hit, hit a wall?
2: Yeah, but, you know, I think that how doubting yourself is fear. It's that place that is sort of the most seductive for me. Like, you know, I think about like the way in which I work now. We all stand on a foundation period. And so you're able to fall and get back up. You're able to fall and get back up. It's not that, you know, it's pitless and you don't have that foundation. Uh, And so I think that 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 allows that comfort for me. I know what I know, but what I don't know, is what I'm more interested in. Mm. And so to be able to step up to it, I know that I'm going
0: to be okay. So you can rely on yourself.
2: Yeah, you can just sort of like, we can always go back to what was. No matter what, however long we live, we will always be moving forward, ready or not. (laughs) That's just part of human nature. And so knowing that, what do we have to lose?
0: (laughs) You now work and live together in a space you call Facility, which was originally an abandoned building you found on the northwest side of Chicago. And it is where the Hornet's Nest lives. Um, (laughs) And I, I understand that when you first saw it, it was in rather rough condition. Portions of the roof were collapsing. Windows were broken. The basement had water damage. What made you decide to purchase this building in that shape?
3: It was the only building that fit everything. You know, when, when you think about everything that his studio needed to be and how it needed to function, we looked for years and years to find a place, a plate that would allow that to become the most seamless that it could be. And this allowed that as well as <coughs> ticked off the few boxes that were really important to me. And those were outdoor space. And so when you think about a big warehouse building, that does not come with outdoor space or the ability to live in it generally. And this one had all these little like secret nooks (coughs) and um, opportunities to be outside from the terrace to creating a little courtyard to this indoor outdoor place where the hornet's nests live. And the storefronts, uh, it just had everything you know
2: it's not like that we had the other buildings that we looked at were in more or less the same sort of condition. It was really as Bob said, it really it really provided us with the exact kind of footprint
3: and the opportunity of for how we imagined
2: the sort of businesses sort of functioning, to be able to have all of studio all on one level versus three or four levels. We can't make this project up here because we gotta can't get it out of the building. And just it was really just about flow. Yeah. And it was just and again to be able to be surrounded by creativity, art, your destiny. To be able to wake up to your destiny, it was everything. And so it was able to provide us with all of that and more.
0: After you renovated the building, you mounted an installation you titled Love Thy Neighbor. Can you describe what you did?
3: That was the first installation in the storefronts. And again, it was a great Nick prompt, right? The prompt came from him and it was, how do we introduce ourselves to the community and i love the idea that when you move somewhere someone brings you a pie and i'm like okay so that is what happens in <laughs> yeah. you know in mayberry But when you're in a big warehouse building (laughs) across from a high school, ain't nobody bringing us a pie.
0: Nobody's ever brought me a Um,
3: pie. (laughs) But instead of like putting up a big sign that says we're facility, this is what we're doing and, you know, kind of making a a deal about staking who we are, we wanted to go the opposite direction. So we reached out to the Chamber of (coughs) Commerce and we partnered with all the businesses in the neighborhood. We found neighborhood um, liaisons that were like block leads and then we also worked with all the schools all the way through high school in the neighborhood within like a six mile radius and we asked them each to introduce themselves to us by taking a name tag and putting at a minimum their name on it but they could also illustrate it or decorate it however they wanted to embellish it and randomly we gave out I don't remember what the number was, but let's say there were 4,000 white tags and there were 3,000 red tags. I had those (coughs) worked out so that when you hung them in the window, you could use that red and that white in order to spell love thy neighbor. And because it's this macro micro thing, these tags are only like two inches (coughs) big up close it was just an installation of all these mini artworks from the community members. But across the street where the high school is, when you walk out of that door, is where you see the monumental Love Thy Neighbor. So it's this dual reed that is made by the, you know, the actual hands that live in the neighborhood. Um,
2: and I think it also was really, was the first opportunity where we were able to talk about facilities sort of mission and purpose.
3: But in this backward way, you know, yeah, as opposed to presenting it, we were able to say, we're asking you to do this. And this is who we are.
2: And so, you know, that civic kind of positioning, the civic sort of work that we strive to sort of move ourselves forward in, in terms of like purpose and why are we here and what are we here to do?
0: So... I want to talk to you about two projects that I think also really reflect those same questions of purpose. The first is an installation called Until. It really got its start in 2012 when Denise Markinish, the curator at Mass MoCA, invited you to do a show in their Gallery 5 space, which is the size of a football field. The show opened in 2016 and has since moved to several other Uh, museums and galleries. Can you talk about the concept of the show and why the name Until?
2: Well, you know, when Denise came to the studio, she came with this uh, invitation and she said, right before she left, she goes, there's only one stipulation. And I said, what? And she said, no sound suits. And I said, girl... (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Because I was really sort of moving, expanding, and sort of like moving in a broader direction in terms of what's next with my practice. And so she goes, I'm going to go away for a year, and then I'm going to come back and sit down with you and talk about what you've come up with. In a year, I really wasn't thinking about it for probably quite some time. And then Michael Brown happened. Yes. And that was the catalyst for that show. The title, Until, came about because I think Michael Brown, Freddie, great. You know, it was Trayvon Martin. It was just one incident after the other. And yet, we are sort of, hearing these stories we are sort of getting all of this propaganda f- <clears throat> from the news and yet these individuals are made to feel as if they're guilty and so until sort of like guilty until proven innocent or innocent until proven guilty and so that was really the beginning of that and I created this crystal cloud scape that allowed the viewer to sort of, part of the installation, you were able to climb up to the top of the crystal cloud and ask yourself that question, is there racism in heaven? Which was this sort of landscape that was built from uh, this sort of fabrication of just extraordinary uh, making of objects, and about a dozen iron lawn jockeys that were all holding dream catchers that were elaborate and blowing through the wind. That was really sort of the beginning of, of the project.
0: Talk about your relationship to the found objects and how that became one of the centerpieces of this installation. Where did you find them? How did you, how did you construct them into the show so seamlessly?
2: You know, I think the found object really, the beginning of that goes back to the hand-me-downs, sort of the deconstructing that, you know, that is really the beginning of that, you know, my mother was the one that turned me on to secondhand stores. You know, and I was just like at the age of like 16 totally into all of that this sort of retro garments and just sort of looking at style and fashion in that way. But I think it then led into the sound suits. You know, again, it was from twigs to bottle caps to other sort of materials. And to think about, like, buttons and to think about, like, excess and surplus that's here and that's available to use, to reclaim, to re sort of identify, was always part of this sort of making vocabulary. So it's always been part of the sort of building of the work. It's always been sort of rooted and grounded in nostalgia, memory, which then allowed the viewer to sort of find their way into the work.
3: I think that's a really critical part, that memory piece, especially when you're asking questions like, is there racism in heaven or what's my role in racism? If someone sees something from their past in that space, well, no longer are they looking at a story from an artist that they're supposed to learn something from. All of a sudden, they've got to start identifying what their own role is in that story.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so I think that memory and history and you know, making connections and finding ways in which people can find their way into the work. Because it's really about, you know, my work is always about me being able to invite you and take you by the hands on this journey.
3: Yeah, and it's not just that invitation, but with Until specifically, as well as most of these newer, large-scale shows, there is a real desire to use the show in its most impactful way. And so if you think of the where until came from, guilty until proven innocent or innocent until proven guilty, we stripped all that other stuff away and left only the word until so that it was more of a space that anybody could go to and interpret as they need to. Mm-hmm. And then that also became the starting point for a platform of performances or responses to the installation itself. So we had invitations to well over a dozen artists in their own right to do works within that about how they interpret until, but also from a community's perspective, reached out to local organizations to use it as a gathering space or a meeting space or a presentation Uh space. And so we even had, in that case, two of the local um, police chiefs who came together to have a meeting with the community underneath that crystal cloud. And remember, they're in a place that's about gun violence, specifically police gun violence. And that only happens if you're thinking about how to use it, to its greatest ability, there's lots of strategy, even though that's not written down in any kind of a way. There's no denying the fact that every project does come with a, a purpose that's bigger than itself.
2: And how do you create safe space for difficult conversations? How do you sort of create spaces and experiences in, in spite of the trauma that speaks about optimism and hope and enlightenment
0: another recent project that you created together was called uh, truth be told a large scale text installation featuring 25 foot tall black vinyl letters covering the 160 foot long facade of the school a gallery in the village of kinderhook new york Apparently, it created quite an unexpected ruckus in town. And and Bob, I was wondering if you can share what happened when you mounted that installation.
3: Sure. Well, um, Truth Be Told was originated uh, right after the George Floyd incident as part of a series of projects that were going to go up in response to that. But it happened to be one of the last projects that we actually got to mount because of its scale and because of its complexity, and that was to put it up at Kinderhook, and the timing led to it being right before the election. And as you can imagine, right before the election, with all the energy that was going on around um, Trump specifically, the word truth starts with T-R-U, And it takes a long time to put these letters up, and Mm -hmm. that's where they started. And so you start to see T, R, U, and people are going nutty, 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 nutty. And so that was the first thing was like, what's this going to be? And people were up in arms about that it might be pro, that it might be con. They didn't know what it was going to be. And then all of a sudden when truth showed up and be told showed up, they all immediately interpreted that as anti-Trump. Not necessarily the case. Of course, we're not unhappy that (coughs) that is the interpretation. But the minute that it had that interpretation by some was the minute that the village absolutely said, no way can this be up there. It's a sign. (laughs) We had to go through all these um, legal channels to like... (coughs) what, what. makes a sign a sign it needs to have date time place it needs to direct you to do something truth be told has no none of those things there but they were not going to let that go even though the the gallery had a an approval to use their building for art however they want to and so this went on for months months and thousands of dollars of fighting to like prove that this is and the only legal thing they could stand on is it's not a sign.
2: Yeah.
0: So the mayor of Kinderhook ordered the artwork to be removed because the town didn't think it looked art.
3: Yeah. Right.
0: They thought it was a sign? Uh,
3: That's what they're using as the reason to take it down. You know, I believe that the reason that they wanted it to come down is that it felt like it was a political statement that was anti-Trump and this needed to not be in our town. It's
2: interesting how, you know, People show their faces. um, But that's
3: how they're able to do it is by just calling it a sign. They weren't going to come clean and 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 say why they were upset about it. And the
2: truth comes out based on communities, neighborhoods. Uh, You know, this is right before voter repression in Atlanta. And so there was a lot of damn truth that was literally... Who's going to win the election? That was another whole thing. So it was so many layers and conflicts of, that was sort of
3: built around that. I just don't understand how the word truth could have a problem for anybody. Like, if you had to pick a single word?
0: Well, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, truth be told. And, and then you're sort of confronted by the truth of what these people
2: think. Isn't it wild? But you know, again at the election was it ever it was all fake based on like false (laughs) truth.
3: So But if you had to pick like a single word, all of us at this table right now, if you had to pick a single word that shouldn't be controversial, what would it be? Like if it's not truth, what would it be? I guess love. Okay. But even that's hope. Hope.
0: Yeah, that's true. There's lots of interpretations. Well, in the end, over 3,300 people signed a petition in support of truth be told, and it did stay up until its end date. So at least justice prevailed. But yeah,
3: justice prevailed. Man,
0: oh man, you know, you think something as as beautiful as just the notion truth be told, which could be anybody's truth, really, yeah. well, um, would be pretty, pretty benign. <laughs> totally,
3: you would think so.
0: Is it going to go anywhere else?
3: Yeah, it's going to be at the Brooklyn Art Museum in April. It's going up at Mass Mocha in about two weeks.
0: Wonderful. I think you should make a vinyl letters kit for people to be able to put the letters on their own homes, because oh I would do that God, in a second. Oh, God, I love that. Idea. <laughs> right? Right? I was fantasizing last night thinking, I want truth be told letters on my house. I
3: love this that idea. So Okay, let's figure that out. If anybody's got funding for this cool project.
0: Listeners, you heard it here first on Design Matters. Oh my God. (laughs) Gentlemen, I have one last question for you before I let you go. One of the things that also kept coming up in my research was your love of sneakers. And so I have to ask the question because I couldn't find the answer anywhere. How many pairs of sneakers do you both really own?
3: Oh, God, I don't even know. It's ridiculous because they're not just like, you can't even go count them because they're too deep. You know, they're stacked too deep.
2: (laughs) But I think, you know, for me, it's more built around how my Feet need to feel when teaching oh, on. on really? Wait a minute, wait a minute,
0: I, I, wait a minute. I, I've read
2: enough to wait know a that minute. Bob is like on that's rolling his ambience. eyes wait a, no, no, no. How my on, feet need to feel when teaching on, while con- teach. on no, concrete no, no. floors? You know, I can't wear <laughs> a real hard shoe. I have to really think about like I'm going to be standing for like eight hours in the classroom. My feet. Not only do they need to look good. Truth be told, but, <laughs> but it really is, really just sort of being able to have something comfortable, and and sneakers today are really quite fabulous.
3: It's full on all about fashion. It's about having the right color for the right thing and the right level height for the right thing. It's all about fashion.
2: Fashion is comfort.
3: The sneakers you're buying these days don't—they're hard. They're not even, they're not even comfy.
2: No.
3: (laughs) Mm -mm, Looks like a pump, feels like a sneaker. Is not how you live.
0: Oh my goodness. Nick Cave, Bob Faust, thank you for making the world a better place with your work. And thank you so, so much for joining me today on Design Matters.
3: It was super fun. It was great. Thanks
0: so much. Thank you. You can find out more about Bob Faust and Nick Cave at facilitychicago.org. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Bellman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.